We went to Chiefs last night and ate a bunch of food. I had sweet potato fries, which, you know, is like a little healthier than the normal fries, but not much, especially when you dip them in ranch. <laughs> oh, man, I feel like, uh, well, I don't feel like it. I know it. I'm kind of getting old. You know, when you get old, der, how about we say that? Because old is sort of like a choice, right? You don't have to like own it. You just, getting older, you get injured in weird ways. You know what I'm saying? How many of you ever wake up in the morning and you're like, how did I break my leg while I was sleeping? <laughs> how did I injure my back while I was taking a nap, you know? And so I injured myself in a very strange way this week, which is that Bethany and I, we're actually, we go to bed pretty early. So we were actually watching a, a comedy special on Netflix by a guy named Nate Bragatsky. Bragatsky, I think his name is, the Tennessee kid. I can actually wholeheartedly recommend it. It's completely clean. It's rated G. Amazing. And uh, we're watching this comedy special. It was like 11 o'clock at night. And I was laughing so hard that I hurt my neck. Like literally, <laughs> literally, I was like corded out like I was lifting weights. You know what I mean? Under the strain of this comedy. So if you need to laugh, I recommend it. And Bethany was laughing so hard, she was like convulsing. And she covered herself with the blankets as if to ward off the humor. You know what I mean? Back. <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, and I was like, I got so tight laughing that I'm like, man, I need to maybe work out more or something if this is what really maxes out my physical capacity. So that has absolutely nothing to do with the message today, but I thought you'd enjoy that. We're starting a brand new series today called In the Name of Love. Now, how many of you know the song? In the name of love. Yeah, I did it for the staff and everybody just looked at me. How many of you know when you're singing falsetto in front of about eight people in a room and no one joins in, it's uncomfortable? <laughs> in the name of love. You know, yeah, there, thanks, Mike. He fist pumped. I know. I, I once told, I think it was Judah and Kyle, I said, you guys know like, like the musical style butt rock. And they were like, what? <laughs> How many of you know what butt rock is? Okay, sweet. You know, it's like, <clears throat> no, butt rock. Anyways, okay. We're going to move on. We're going to move on. Obviously, this is a, this is a tough crowd today. So uh, we're starting this new series in the name of love. You know, we do crazy stuff in the name of love. Come on, somebody. We do crazy stuff in the name of love. I remember when I was pursuing Bethany before we were, were married, uh, you know, I, I, I like was crazy. I think I told her that I loved her in like two weeks of us dating. And she was like, that's a little too close. That's a little too much. <laughs> I was like, no, we're getting married. We're getting married right now. And I was like, too far, right? In the name of love, like we do crazy things. And Bethany and I, we had sort of a tumultuous um, first year and a half, two years. Like we, we, we dated. Uh, I told her I loved her within like two weeks. Then I broke up with her later. And then <laughs> my kids are always like so mad at me for that still. <laughs> they are. They're like, dad, remember when you broke up with mom? <laughs> it's like I threw a bunch of puppies off of a cliff or something, the way they say it which I get, I get. I think I tweaked my laugh injury when I was right there. So anyways, uh, I was doing some crazy stuff in the name of love. And then, uh, and then Bethany and I were kind of having some trouble and she wanted to like show me that she really loved me. So she did something really cool and crazy in the name of love. And if you know Bethany, this is a big deal. One day, somebody's like, hey, come here, come into the, the auditorium because we work together at the church and all of our interns and Bible college students were in there and Bethany was up on stage, she had a guitar and they put like one of our old school church chairs in the middle of the, of the floor. And I sat there and she played me a song and sang it to me, like a love song. That was, that was tight. That was cool. Like she was out there and that was amazing. And that was way outside of her character, but she was doing it in the name of love. Now, unfortunately, we still broke up several weeks, <laughs> later, weeks and months later. But we got back together. And I remember when I came to my senses, like I broke up with Bethany and then I realized I, she can do much better than me. I will never do better than her. How many guys were like, come on, you know, you know what I'm talking about. So I, I, I begged my way back and I, I, I basically coerced her to get in my car. That sounds weird. <laughs> Roses are red, violets are blue. I have a gun, get in the van, you know. It's, just joking. My brother Johnny used to sell that joke. It's his joke. It's not my joke. I was just repeating it. But I was like, come on, Bethany, come on, ride with me to Ashland. We're, we're going to go do, we were on our way with, hang out with some friends. And so she got in and I was like, uh, I was like, hey, please, please forgive me. Like, let, let's get back together. So we got back together and we've been married now for 14 plus years. Come on. 
exciting. But we do some things in the name of love that are kind of out there. And as followers of Jesus, love is a huge part of our faith. I mean, if you listen to what Jesus said in John 13, he said, A new command I give you, this is him to his disciples, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. A lot of the problem that we have with with church and with being Christians is not that we aren't nice to the people outside, it's that we need to treat each other better. Love one another, right? Jesus said, hey, play nice in the sandbox with your brothers and sisters. Tell my kids all the time, stop fighting or I'll kill you, right? (laughs) How many of you parents are like, you know what I'm saying, like you just want your own children to get along. Like if you can't get along with your brother because you're mad because he picked the wrong show on Netflix, how are you going to get along with people out in the world? right? So Jesus had the same thing with his kids. He's like, guys, you've got to love each other. Mark 12, 31 talked about the great commandments. Got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So loving your neighbor is a big deal. Matthew 7, 12, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This is Jesus giving the golden rule. It's reflecting back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. The golden rule, right? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. A lot of people don't realize that was Jesus that said that. That's not just a moral platitude. It was Jesus that said that. So love is a big part of our faith. How many of you would say as a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're not a follower of Jesus today, maybe you're here checking things out, but you would say, I recognize that being a Christian, this love thing's kind of a big deal, right? It kind of is important. But when we look back in history, followers of Jesus, Christians have wrestled with how to live this out. So we know that love matters. We know that we should be doing things in a loving way. We should act in a loving way. We should love our neighbor. We should love each other. And we should love people around us. But we wrestle with that, how to live as the hands and feet, live out that love as the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And sometimes people get it really wrong. Even Christians get it really, really wrong, right? That was confusing. But yeah, they get it really wrong. And other times they get it really right. Now, getting it wrong, we're going to talk about this just for a minute. I don't want to, want to go deeply into this, but there have been situations and times and historical events and all kinds of things, and even today, where Christians, in the name of love, in the name of Christ, have been unkind and hateful on the basis of religion. Is that true? Okay. Now, let me ask you this. Is that what Jesus taught? No, but it happens. There have been uh, times where Christians have used spiritual or religious trust or authority to cover up abuse, to cover up shaming people, or to use it to control or manipulate, and really twisting the idea of love. This is actually a big one happening in our day and age, where the idea of love is now being twisted, redefined, and really uh, conformed or malformed, I would say, to, uh, to fit into a lower standard of righteousness, holiness, and morality. So in the name of love, a lot of things are done that have been done throughout history that have been negative. Now, I want to say something, and I'm, I'm going I'm to go off a little bit today. We're going to go kind of deep. Is that all right? So we're going to talk about history. We're going to talk about philosophy. We're going to talk about theology, and we're going to talk about facts, not feelings. Because in our day and age, love is really this sort of nebulous, undefined thing that we throw around, and, and whether a person is a Christian or secular or whatever, it gets thrown around And I see a lot of this right now. There are many, many people that are doing what's called deconstructing their faith. Now, let me just say this. When a person deconstructs their faith, the problem that I observe as a pastor and as a Christian and a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is that I rarely see someone deconstruct their faith and then reconstruct it stronger, better, and more like Jesus than when they deconstructed in the first place. Someone that goes, I'm deconstructing my faith. I'm out of church. I don't need to be part of church. They rarely start to give more, serve more, and love more. What tends to get reconstructed in the place of deconstruction is a watered-down version of a basically nebulous, moralistic, therapeutic deism where I get to invent my own religion and my moral code becomes hunt and peck and figure it out on the way, connect the dots, and whatever I say is right and love and good and that ends up, and, and it never ends up looking more like Jesus. It always ends up looking less. All right. So we're going to talk about that today. You okay? Hope you had some coffee. <laughs> and in our day and age, the church and Orthodox Christianity, the Christian faith, is used as kind of a punching bag. It's a favored free shot. 
If you go post on social media and you talk about how Christians are bigoted and hateful and homophobic, nobody can say anything against that. You won't get censored. But if you say something on the, another line, you will. Now, that's not an opinion. That's factual. That's the day and age that we live in. Man, it got uncomfortable in here. It's, you can say, oh man, church is abusive, it's homophobic, it's outdated, it's judgmental. Free shot. The problem is that many of these shots, many of these, these things are based on, mistakenly founded on an egregiously false, biased historical narrative that recklessly disregards the facts of history. Let me say that again. Many of the free shots that are taken, when you say Christians are homophobic, they're abusive, they're outdated, their moral code is, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, all of these things that people are saying, even Christians that are deconstructing, this whole fight that's going on in our culture today. It's really, really, it'll, you, you're very popular if you take shots at the fuddy-duddy religious people, the Christians and their, their outdated ways. Anybody else live in America 2021? The problem is that these ideas, these concepts, even the idea that, oh, Christians have done all these horrible things in the name of God and wars of religion and the crusades and all of these things, people will bring out all these things. They're based on a completely egregiously false historical narrative that's coming from a biased perspective and people that want to inject new facts into history. The problem is there are people like myself and like many of you that have actually studied these things out and know their history. And the problem is evil will prevail when good men and good women say nothing. So we're going to talk about some facts today. Hello. You see, when you actually study history, not just church history, but the history of Western civilization, what you find is that the Judeo-Christian worldview and the church is responsible for so many of the good things that our culture and society is rooted and based on, even the things that someone would say, the moral authority that someone would create, have a judgment or an accusation against the Christian church or against the Christian worldview that it rests upon. When you go back into the, into the church history and you go back thousands of years to ancient Rome and you study ancient cultures and when Christianity shows up on the scene, you realize that Christians were responsible for getting it right in the name of love far more than they ever got it wrong. Hospitals, universities, orphanages, serving the less fortunate are all things that come from the Christian worldview and Christendom as it rises on the world stage. You need to understand that in ancient Rome, it was Christians that introduced a brand new perspective of love, compassion towards the downtrodden. In ancient Rome, if you had a child that you didn't want, you tossed it into the street and it was eaten by dogs. Christians are so uncompassionate because they say mean things. Okay, don't say mean things, Christians. But we need to go back to history. When, when Christ shows up on the scene, he introduces this brand new way of thinking, this thing that we call love. Now, you can't go into your brain and pull out these concepts, but I want you to understand where they come from. Okay? Don't worry, we're gonna, I'm going to say nice things. Everybody's a little uncomfortable right now, I understand. In several ancient pandemics... It was Christians, 3rd century, 4th century. It was Christians that selflessly served their neighbors at great personal danger because of Christ's command and example. Early Christians heard their bishops and their pastors and their shepherds and their teachers tell them that Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. That there was no greater love than to lay your life down for one's friend. And in ancient pandemics, there were cities where the death rate was half in cities where the church was of what it was in cities that were pagan. Because in pagan cities, people didn't have an ethic shaped by the gospel, shaped by neighbor love, shaped by the teachings of Jesus, and they would abandon each other and flee, preserving their own life, and Christians would stay at great personal danger. Go read about Eusebius. Go read about Bishop Cyprian. Read about these Christians, Christian leaders and Christians that in these cities in ancient times that actually were the leading edge of medical technology, medical care, nursing, helping people. It's actually mind-blowing. And yet in our day and age, it's like, well, any Christians that want to gather and worship God and not wear a mask are basically living in a trailer out in Thurston somewhere, playing the banjo. Bada-bing, ding, 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 ding. What a bunch of rubes. What a bunch of morons. Why would you want to worship God? Anybody else live in America 2021? 
Let me just tell you, no, we're not stupid. I've watched people die of COVID this year. It's tragic. It's horrible. How many of you would say this is a terrible plague upon our world? Deeply compassionate. I know the heart of God is broken for the lives that are lost. But I've seen tens, hundreds, thousands die physically, but millions die spiritually of isolation, loneliness, brokenheartedness. So how foolish is it for us to not think holistically about the spiritual, emotional, relational health of our world? So yes, as Christians, we want to preserve physical life. It's always been that way. But we also understand that you're more than just bone and flesh and all that. I put my preaching pants on today, guys. Dr. Rodney Stark says this, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity ordered effective nursing services. He says, while the other world religions emphasize mystery and intuition, Christianity alone embraced reason as lo and ro logic as the primary guide to religious truth. Because God is a rational being and the universe is his personal creation, it ne necessarily has a rational, lawful, stable structure awaiting increased human comprehension. This is the key to many intellectual undertakings, among them the rise of science. It's the Christian worldview that gave birth to science, to medicine, to compassion, to opposing human slavery. It's interesting because almost nobody understands uh, that human slavery was eradicated. Not, it wasn't the Civil War didn't eradicate human slavery. That was one piece of this. But this whole thing about human slavery is a battle that was always being fought between people who believed in the intrinsic value of a human being despite the color of their skin and those that did not. And that idea only comes from the Christian worldview. So the Christians were the ones fighting against slavery in the Middle Ages. They were fighting against slavery in England before we ever had a civil war. And we were fighting against it in America in our day and age. Now there were Christian people or people that called themselves Christian on both sides. And we can, we, you know, it's a deep topic. But the actual idea that, it, that humans have intrinsic value despite the color of their skin comes from the Christian worldview. The rise of science. When you understand that si people think that, that faith in God and science are antithetical, that's a foolish concept. The reason that science is something we can even pursue as a discipline is because there is a creator God who wove design intricacy into the fabric of the universe. Because there was an intelligent, rational creator at the beginning, we can follow in his footsteps and think his thoughts after him and discover the reasonable and rational design of our universe. What about the dinosaurs? Well, did, is the earth 7,000 years old or 70,000 or 7 billion? It doesn't matter. What matters is that in Genesis 1, we get the actual answer. There is a God and he created it all. And because he did, we live in a rational, reasonable universe that we can coherently walk through and observe and understand. I thought we were talking about love today. We are. I'm just laying some foundations. Science, medicine, compassion, opposing human slavery, the idea of human dignity, and the eleva elevation of reason as a means to connecting with God. These are things that come out of our Christian worldview. Now, while there has undoubtedly been failure at an individual level, meaning Christians not living up to the standard of love set by Jesus, which I would say is undeniable. Individually, as Christians, how many of you would say, uh, I've fallen short of the standard of love? Okay? But I want to speak to you, whether you are today a follower of Jesus or today you are not, and I want us to be very clear on the reality of the facts of history because we are moving into a time and a season in our culture where things like historical fact and narrative are now becoming very loose with social and progressive agendas pushing. And we need to be, be very clear. I would not be a good pastor and shepherd if I didn't say, let's make sure we define the lines so we can correctly live as citizens of this world and citizens of heaven so we can correctly love the world around us but not be unclear on where the lines actually are. So while there has undoubtedly been failure at an individual level, 
the Christian experiment, the Christian emergence of the Christian worldview on the world stage has been an undeniable success in Western history. And it's all based on Jesus' teachings and his mandate to love God, love our neighbor, and love our fellow believers. Now, I want to give you, uh, if you have my slide up there, uh, some further research. If you guys, if you're like uh, cool, I was going to say geeky, but it's not geeky, it's actually cool. Dr. Rodney Stark, everything he writes, utterly brilliant. He was the uh, professor of Institute of Studies of Religion at Baylor University. He has a book on the Crusades that will blow your mind. So read it. It's called God's Battalions. He has a book about the rise of Christianity in the West. Really amazing. John Dixon, his book Humilitas, talks about the cruciform shape of history. So at the, 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 everything that switched when Jesus uh, died on the cross and everything that pivoted in history, it's a brilliant book. And then Dr. Glenn S. Sunshine, which is a really cool name, uh, he wrote a book called, uh, I think it's called Why You Think the Way You Do. So how many of you would say living in this cultural moment that you are in, that is important for you to be, actually be informed about the facts of history, philosophy, and be able to actually understand the, 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 the movements that we're in, right? These are important. So there's some further research if you want to dig into this. Now, all of that stuff is for us to set up a conversation about love. Because we need to talk about defining love and where we get that definition. And we're in kind of a tough spot because every follower of Jesus really desires to be loving. If you're a Christian here, I guarantee the motivation that you have, most of you that I know, you have a mo you're motivated, you want to be loving. You, you don't want to come across as hateful. You don't want to come across as bigoted. You don't want to be known as the fuddy-duddy, science-denying you know, whatever. You, you want to, to, to actually fit into the world around you and make a difference, and it comes from a place of love. Is that true? But it's difficult in our day and age because this definition of love and the shifting sands and the movements of philosophy and politics and all these things are, make it very difficult, and it's important for us to find our footing in truth and reality and what God's love is so that we can operate in a loving way in all of these areas. You see, it's, it's interesting to me because people will say things like, well, you need to keep religion out of politics, and you need to keep religion out of science, and you need to keep religion out of all these things, and yet those things are themselves religion in our day. See, in our day and age, we don't have science, we have scientism. Scientism is a religious belief. It's this idea that meaning and truth and values will be revealed to me as we know more about the physical cosmos. This is where most people operate. They're actually deriving, they're deriving moral values from a faith perspective of something called science. And if we're not clear about that, then we don't know what we're actually talking about. Does that make sense? Maybe not, but we'll keep moving on. Love is a, in our world is a matter of debate and conflict. So in our culture, love is defined and expressed in some different ways. And I'm just going to go through a couple very quick, very quick. Number one, just a general sense of goodwill. I say, I'm not actively harming you. I'm not opposing you. I'm just sort of, Kyle, we're, we're good. We're good, you know. We're good with each other. It's just, I love people, right? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like, just general kind of goodwill, feelings, love, loving people, okay? That's, that's a, a one way that we look at it in our culture. Number two, feelings and emotions, like love, you know, that loving feeling. Go ahead and put my Twitter-pated pictures up here. I'm Twitter-pated, right? <laughs> I feel so loving. This is, this is a, probably the, the main way people think about love. I'm in love, right? I like the, the line, you know, I, I like you, but I'm, I'm not in like with you, you know. Um, that's a way that people define and express love, and, that, and that's a part of love, but it's not the whole story. Okay, next one, number three, sexual attraction and activity. So, have you ever heard the phrase, love is love? Anybody? You thought I was just going to preach like a cute message after Easter, didn't you? No, I told you I put my preaching pants on today. If you've ever heard the statement, love is love, what's being expressed is that no matter how you choose to express your sexuality, heterosexual, homosexual, both, whatever, every definition we have, that that's love, that love is love. So if you love people by being homosexual or you love people by being heterosexual, so how I express my sexuality is love, love is love. That's that statement. Now, that sounds really nice on the surface. Love is love. But actually, no, that's like a problem because 
What happens when we have disagreements on moral values, and then who's really being unloving? Does that make sense? We, we, it doesn't just work. You can't just say it, and it just becomes true. It's not how that thing, that's not how it works. So in our culture, though, love is love, and anything goes, except for the fact that we have all these disagreements. So even somebody who might think that homosexual sexual expression is okay, and love is love, might not be okay with a 45-year-old man being in love with a 12-year-old boy. Hello. <laughs> Nobody's amening on that one. But the person who's okay with that, what do we say about that? You see, you can't just say love is love. We actually have to have some lines. And everybody has lines. The problem is that we don't want to be, again, put into a category where it's like, oh, there's the old fuddy-duddy, outdated, homophobic Christians. Who gets to define what sexual love, how it's done properly and expressed? Who gets to define it? You? Me? I don't want to be on that throne. Man, it's almost as if there was this omnipotent, all-knowing, absolutely benevolent being that told us there was a proper expression of sexuality. And that every single one of us was going to come up against it in our brokenness and sin and fall short of the standard. Whether you struggle with heterosexual sin or homo homosexual sin or any other kind of sexual sin, welcome to the human race. We're all broken in this area. There's no judgment today that I have for you, only the grace of Jesus. What I can tell you, though, is that maybe in my life, my story is that I struggle with heterosexual sin, but you know what I don't get to say? Love is love, so it's fine. So I have 17 side hustles, side, side chicks, right? A little bit of Monica on the side, a little bit of... <laughs> Bethany, love is love. No, it's not. Love is death in that case. <laughs> and I'm the one that's going to die. <laughs> So every single one of us falls short of the standard of God's perspective of sexual expression and love. So it's not Christians versus homosexuals. It's absolutely not that. And that's one of the worst things we could ever have. If you're here today and you're struggling with your homosexuality, and, 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 and some of us are struggling with heterosexuality, and some of us are struggling with whatever you want to fill in the blank, welcome to the human race. It's not a battle between Christians and one sexual expression. It's a battle between human sin and God's righteousness. And the answer is Christ, and he defines love. The problem in our culture, though, is that we deal with these problems by redefining rather than repenting. We go, you know what? If I'm on the other side of the line, what I can do is just move the line, and now I'm okay. But again, what happens when somebody crosses a line that you weren't okay with? Because I'll just tell you right now, any 40-year-old men that want to come after my kids, it won't be, you won't meet the gentle shepherd, you'll meet the German shepherd. <laughs> so there are some lines we're not okay with, and we're not going to have a Bible discussion about it. You hear what I'm saying? He's so nice. <laughs> Sexual attraction activity, a part of love, not the whole story. And then we have this one, number four, what I call tyrannical tolerance, which is unquestioning acceptance of beliefs and behaviors from the current cultural moment. The only thing that is not tolerated is intolerance challenging or standing up to someone else's beliefs or behaviors or simply disagreeing with them and saying, actually, I don't find that to be correct or right, is seen as hateful. Now, you might be the most hateful, bigoted, homophobic jerk, and you need to repent. Right? But you also might just be saying, no, I actually just agree with the Bible about what the ethics of sexuality, morality, all of these things are, and that doesn't mean you're hateful. Does that make sense? So you, you might be saying the right things and be a hateful jerk and need to repent. So just to be clear, like some people as Christians are like, oh, I can just say whatever I want because it's God's truth. No, <laughs> you're not reflecting Christ's heart. Therefore, you're not really honestly reflecting his truth. But in our day and age, it's interesting that the Christian worldview and Christianity has been called intolerant when the exact opposite is true. 
you ever heard of the term gaslighting? So gaslighting is where you basically accuse somebody or like put something on them that you're doing. So it's interesting because right now, Christians, it's like, man, Christians are so intolerant. So intolerant. We need to like not tolerate all their intolerance. In fact, we need to like silence them and shut them. You know what I mean? It's crazy. But like that's gaslighting, okay? Because here's the reality of tolerance from a Christian perspective. The idea of Christian tolerance, what I would classify as loving my neighbor, okay, is that I actively work for your good, even if I disagree with your belief and behavior. Check this out. Christians are told to love their enemies. So if you're a Christian conservative, you're supposed to actually lay your life down for the person with the Biden sticker on their bumper who disagrees with everything you think is good and right and pure and lovely and a good report in the world and serve them as if they were Jesus himself. Conversely, if you're a Democrat and you think anybody who wears a red MAGA hat is basically a Nazi, you're called to love them and serve them as if that was Jesus himself. Well, geez, that's not very fun. No. No. Christian tolerance or loving my neighbor is that I actively work for your good, even if you're my enemy. But that means that it doesn't mean that I have to think that what you think is right. Tyrannical tolerance in our culture demands that you change your beliefs to suit my preferences. Well, if you don't think that the way that I define love, my love is love, love is love, if you don't agree with that, then you hate me. No. Actually, as a Christian, I'm called to love you. So if if the way I'm communicating or what I'm doing is hurtful to you, then I do apologize for that. But that doesn't, you you don't get to change someone else's beliefs in their head and say that that's intolerant when they're actively working to, for your benefit or good. And this is going to become clear in just a second. You see, the danger here is that morality and culturally accepted behaviors are a moving target. This is fascinating to me because if you study our cultural moment, it's interesting. How many of you like Harry Potter? Because I do. I think it's amazing. It's wonderful. It's genius. So the author of Harry Potter is a lady named J.K. Rowling. She's incredible. J.K. Rowling's actually uh, like what I would call a... Um, progressive or, or maybe a, 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 she's a liberal Christian, but she actually has a Christian faith of some type. But J.K. Rowling is a very avowed feminist. She really believes in empowering women. She's a feminist, okay? And uh, right now she's under attack because she was saying that she doesn't think it's right for men who want to be women or who are transgender to be in women's restaurants because it's disempowering to women. So now if you're following this on Twitter, there's this massive battle in this war where J.K. Rowling, who is actually a feminist, is under attack by the transgender community for her statements that are hateful. But she was just celebrated like five years ago for her feminism, but now she's under attack for her assault against transgenderism. And it's a fascinating thing going on. And as a Christian white male who is pretty much the the target of all attacks, uh, (laughs) I'm happy to sit it out, right? You know what I mean? I'm just like back there with popcorn, like that Michael Jackson meme, you know what I mean? I'm just here for this, you know? And I don't celebrate the conflict or the battle, but it's just interesting to see that in culture, what was like acceptable 10, 20, 30 years ago now is like, ah, taboo. And then in 20 or 30 years, it's going to be moved again. And now you have all of these people, like for instance, this whole Me Too movement that came out. This is a fascinating thing to study in our cultural moment because you had basically sexism and really sexual harassment was sort of like fine in Hollywood in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And then we got woke and in the 2000s and we were like, wait a second, we're not, we're not all about that now. So you had all these like nasty people. Now it's coming out and getting exposed and now we're like lynching them because, but it was fine back then. Do you see the problem with this? Does anybody see the problem with this? You could be everybody's favorite social justice warrior in 2021. Wait till 2041 when somebody resurrects your behavior and now you're crucified because it's a moving target. That's the problem with tyrannical tolerance. That's the problem with everything goes, everything's okay, everything's equal. No, this isn't the Lego movie. Everything isn't awesome. As Christians, we are bound 
to believe and uphold God's perspective of love, truth, and morality. And when God's word puts us at odds with culture, we must love that culture but stand with God's word. Can I invite you into a very simple place of peace in your life? Why don't you abandon the battle of opinions and perspectives and embrace the stability of rooting your worldview and truth on the word of God and make a cognizant decision. I will love my culture. I will love my neighbor, but I will not be swept away in the tides and the sweeping changes and the winds of change of culture and get caught up in every cultural moment and brought down when it, goes, when it becomes out of style, but I will ins- instead root my life on the greatest ethic that has ever existed, which is the ethic rooted in the word of God that comes from Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And instead of the milk of human kindness, choose the blood of Jesus that actually unites and heals and transforms. What's sad to me is that in our day and age, even churches have stood with culture because of the pressure. Do you understand that the words I'm saying today could literally get out on social media and wreck my life? I could get doxxed, whatever. So many pastors, so many Christian leaders have bowed their cowardly knees to a culture at odds with God's word. And I'd rather have 50 of us in here actually studying scripture than thousands bowing down whenever culture blows its trumpet. So let's go to the big idea here. We want to stand with God's word. We don't do that in a hateful way. We don't do that in a prideful way. And we don't do that in a way where we think we know everything and we have it all figured out. No, no, no. We actually have to stand with God's word in a humble posture. Let me just tell you, this year, past year, I've had conversations with some of you that are wonderful, dear members of our church that are, are uh, absolutely, you know, feeling like what we do for the pandemic is not enough and we need to be more isolated and social distancing and, I, and I've listened to you and valued you and then I've heard from other people that are like, it's so stupid, why are we wearing masks and anybody that wears a mask, da, da, da. and I've valued you and listened to you and guess what, we all are here together as brothers and sisters. There were people that threatened to leave our church because I wouldn't condemn Biden and Harris and people that were threatening our, to leave our church because I wouldn't condemn Trump. And I said, I'm not a politician, I'm a pastor. I'm here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You vote, your conscience, you vote according to God's word, but I'm not gonna weigh into your political battle. Jesus didn't come to establish a political kingdom. He came to establish his kingdom, and that's who I work for. So I want you to understand that the things I'm saying today, I'm not coming from, this isn't, well, he's, this is coming from a perspective against one side or the other. It's not. It's that we as Christians need to look for a third way. We need to look for a place of rootedness in God's word that will put us at odds with culture. Maybe it won't put you at odds with culture today, but it will tomorrow. It will at some point. Okay, let's go to the big idea here, and we're going to wrap this up. Defining love really isn't up to us. It's up to God. And what's awesome about this is that the scripture is really clear on this topic. 1 John 4, 8 says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. The definition and expression of love are found in the character and nature of God. He is the perfect example of what love is supposed to be. So if you were to look up the word love on Google, what it should bring up is a picture of God. We don't have that, right? But that would probably not be good if we had a picture. You know, it's like Bigfoot. You know, it's blurry, but you know. Um, but God, that, he's love. Like he defines love, his character, his nature, his expression. And his example of love is very clear. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. So I love that. It's very clear. This is love. Not that we had it figured out. Not that we understand love. We don't. We only love because he loved us. 
He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, so God loved us this way, we should love each other that way. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love, real love, the real definition of love is this. One, sacrificial, to be, it's moving away from oneself. Oh my goodness, I think we want to talk about how much everybody talks about how you have to love yourself. You got to love yourself. You can't love other people until you love yourself. No. You need, to, you need to have truth in the way you think about yourself. But self-love is like elevated to this idol, you know, idolatry in our culture. And I think Bethany might be sharing about this later in the series. Maybe. I'm putting her on the, <laughs> the spot. God's love is sacrificial. It's not about you. It's about the other person and laying your life down for them. God gave us Christ, and Christ laid down his life for us. God's love isn't self-serving. God wasn't getting blessed in his type of love. It, it, it's, it's just him giving it to us, okay? It's sacrificial. Number two, it's rooted in revealed truth. It's defined by God's character, nature, and actions revealed in the Bible. The problem, again, we've talked about the moving target. Love is love. What is love? How do we figure this out? Who gets to draw the lines? He does, and he told us what it is in the scriptures, and it's worked for thousands of years, and it's transformed the fabric of human history. So you don't even have to take my word for it, or even take his word for it. Look at the fruit. This is why the redefinition and the historical twisting of what Christianity and the West has been about into some very, very strange thing, you can actually feel and sense the demonic agenda behind it. Because what happens is if we, if we unmoor uh, our, our, our cultural perspectives of love now from what actually took place in history, you miss everything that took place before Christ. I guarantee you, a world without Christianity is a very bleak and dark place indeed. There are no hospitals. There are no orphanages. What we think about compassion, what, all of these things come from this worldview. If you, if you remove the influence of Christ and his people throughout history, we live in a very dark place. As bad as the world is, as bad as things are now, it'd be so much worse. So we have God's love is rooted in revealed truth. It's defined by his character, his nature, and his actions revealed in the Bible. And third, it's demonstrated by action, not intention. This is what we have to be very careful of. In our day and age, if you disagree with someone, what, what is often thrown against you is that you're unloving. Do you hear what I'm saying? So if I say, well, I believe this and this, and somebody goes, well, I disagree with you, and I go, well, you don't love me. Well, no, like, remember when I was there for you when your parent passed away and I watched your kids? Remember when I was there and I mowed your lawn when you were sick? Remember when I cared for you? Remember when I showed up at the hospital? Remember when I was talking to you when you had screwed up at work and posted that stupid thing and I was actually talking to you about it? I was demonstrating my love for you. Intention does not define love. Actions define love. So in a, in a, in a culture where love is so nebulously defined, we have to be careful as Christians. We don't get sucked into that, and we actually realize, no, I'm either acting in a loving way, or I'm acting in, an, uh, I'm acting in, a, in a loving way, or I'm acting in an unloving way. But it's not just this amorphous, esoteric, unknown sort of definition of love that we play by. We have a very clear playbook. Are you acting in a loving way? If the answer is yes, then you're being a loving person. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because God's love was demonstrated. It was, it was demonstrated in action. Okay, so we're going to land this airplane, I promise. Here's the thing I want you to catch today. And we said a lot of things, a lot of things. I anticipate many emails this week. That's why we're going on vacation tomorrow, babe. We're, we're hitting, hopping on an airplane. <laughs> Truth and love are friends, not enemies. When we act unloving in the name of truth, we miss the mark. So Christian, if you're here hearing me say this today and you're like, yes, we're fighting back. No. No. It, when you act in an unloving way in the name of truth, you miss the mark. We had a girl we were discipling in our Bible college and she loved to rebuke people. That was like her chosen ministry was like, I get to correct all my other fellow Bible college students. And we had to revoke her correction card. Bethany and I called her into her office. We're like, you don't get to do that anymore. <laughs> like, all you get to do is encourage people because she, she loved it. Some of us have this 
thing where we like to tell it like it is. And what it really kind of is is a get-out-of-jail-free card of you acting unloving in the name of truth. That's not cool. When we use the Bible as a sword, when we use God's truth as a sword, we're like Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came for Jesus and he uses his sword to cut off the high priest's servant's ear. It's a man named Malchus. That's some deep Bible trivia right there. don't even know where that name came from. It just popped (laughs) into my head. We cut people's ears off and they can't hear the truth of the gospel. So when you act in an unloving way in the name of truth, well, I'm going to tell people God's truth and I'm going to come against all these relativists and progressives and all this kind of stuff and they need to know history. Like, you need to hear my heart in this as I share these things with you is to create a platform by which we can deal with these issues, but it's not so we can act unloving. We deeply, desperately love people around us that don't know Jesus, that disagree with us. We will lay our lives down for them. So if you're acting unloving in the name of truth, you're missing the mark. Our primary purpose isn't to fix other people's beliefs and behaviors. Well, I just need to convince those people to think like me. No, you don't need to do that. Your job is to love your neighbor as yourself, to lead them to Jesus. Your job is to make disciples. And you can't make disciples if you're arguing with people about what they think. You need to love them so that they encounter Jesus. And then all of us can grow in what we think. Conversely, when we embrace lies in the name of love, we miss the mark. And this for for you, if you're a Christian today in 2021, is a very dangerous position to find yourself in where you are on your little boat and you're in the, the, the sea of culture and culture goes, well, now we're all really against racism. So let's run over here. But now we're really against this type of person and we're over here and we hate these people and we're gonna string this person up and you have to do this or you're, or you're not doing enough. And we get caught up into all these things. We get caught up into the cultural moment. We get caught up into the winds of change. We get caught up into all this stuff. Or we, or we start to try to move the lines so we can make people feel comfortable. When the reality is there's one line and we're all on the other side of it. There's one line, which is this. Have you trusted in Jesus to pay for your sins, whether you're homosexual, heterosexual, Republican, Democrat, a man or a woman, black or white? There is no color. There is no difference. There is no socioeconomic classes. It's, there's one line, and the line is, do you know Jesus or do you not? And we don't need to get caught up in everything else. And when you understand that, it simplifies everything, and you can ask yourself this question, am I laying my life down for other people, regardless of their color, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of who they voted for? I don't care who you voted for. I care that you vote for Jesus. I care that you come to know Christ because there is no transformation apart from salvation. There is no change apart from coming to the Savior. And so church, we can't embrace lies in the name of love. Well, well, we're loving people, so we're embracing all of this nonsense. No. Love cannot be defined apart from God's revealed truth in the scripture. It's not about how we feel or the moving target of culture. When we unmoor the definition of love, from God's truth, we also disconnect it from God's power. You see, the problem is when we define what love is, then we say, well, my love, the love that I've defined for you, what you've defined for yourself, that's what you get. The kind of love I want you to experience and that I want to experience was revealed pretty powerfully like this on a wooden cross 2,000 years ago. But the same God that laid his life down for you on a cross is the same one that says this is where the lines fall and this is what love is. Letting a lie go unchallenged isn't loving, it's harmful. It's cowardly and it's self-serving. Worldly, ungodly tolerance perpetuates, perpetuates a culture of superficial love that ultimately keeps broken people from encountering God's love. Again, our primary purpose is not to fix people's thoughts or to embrace whatever currently is on, in vogue in culture. Our primary purpose is to lead people to Jesus and make disciples. Father, I thank you today for your word. I thank you, Lord, that we're being challenged in our thinking and challenged in our perspectives. Lord, it's a, it's a time uh, that is difficult to be a Christian for many reasons. It's, it's easy in so many ways, and then in other ways it's very difficult. And I pray, Lord, that we would be rooted in your truth, rooted in your love, that, God, we would not embrace lies in the name of love, that we wouldn't try to move the lines that you have laid in place in order to make someone, even ourselves, feel comfortable but Lord, we would recognize that there's one line 
and it's the, the line of have I trusted in Jesus or not? Do I accept God's view of reality and truth and love and morality or do I create my own? And Lord, it's not up to us. We, we agree with you and we disagree with ourselves and we trust in you. Lord, I, I pray that we would not embrace lies in the name of love and I pray we would not embrace hate and anger and hurting people and using truth as a sword, as a weapon in the name of truth, but that we would be loving, that we would speak the truth in love as your scripture says. And in the name of love, we would love the world around us regardless of how wrong we might believe they are. Because Lord, there isn't us being right and them being wrong. It's us as the human race being wrong and you as a loving good God being right. And so Lord, as we serve you and we join your mission in the world to make disciples. Help us not to use truth as a weapon, but to use it as a bridge to help people understand and come to faith in you. That Lord, we would care less about somebody changing their politics, their, their morals, changing their beliefs, changing those things. Lord, we would care more about their life being changed and their heart being saved by the gospel and letting you do that work, Lord, as you see fit as their, their benevolent father and as you do with us, Lord. God, we give you this time today in Jesus' name, amen. Really quick, go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes. If you're here today, that was a bit of a mouthful of a message. But listen, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, I want to invite you to do something uh, powerful today, which is just to say, you know what? I'm not going to trust in myself. I'm not going to trust in my own righteousness. Or I'm, and I'm not going to even let my own sinfulness take me away from uh, God. I'm going to trust in the work of Jesus at the cross. He gave his life for you, for me that we could be made right with God. And God is inviting you into his family. He's inviting you to his table. All of us are sinners at the foot of the cross and we need salvation through what Jesus did for us. So if that's you, would you just raise your hand today so I can see? I wanna put my faith in Christ. Thank you, awesome, thank you, awesome, thank you, thank you, awesome. And now I want you to pray this prayer with me. Just repeat after me, let's all pray together. Dear Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you and in you alone. I thank you that you gave your life for me at the cross. I give you my life and I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.